When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 294 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and me and my dog have synced. Is this as in dog periods? Moon time is upon us. So Missy is having her first season but we came on on the same day. Do dogs have like monthly periods or like just? No, no, not monthly. So I think it's usually once a year, maybe twice a year. No, no, no. Until you have them spayed and then no times a year, which is good news for my sofa. But yeah, we've synced and it's very cute and it is actually a full moon. But yeah, it just means you've got to kind of make sure she doesn't hang out with male dogs in the park. Yeah, like Elizabeth Taylor. Sex in the City reference for you all there. I mean, dogs are a bit of a mystery to me, so I didn't really know about that. But then like um, when I had Lyra, I learned that babies can have periods. Yeah. Because it's like the hormones that they've ingested. I don't know. Their, their mum's hormones are in them, basically. So they <laughs> Absorbed. Like, yeah. Maybe ingested because they are like literally swimming around in... Well, less said about yeah. that, the better. Hello. Hannah isn't here, yeah. but you know. Um, yeah. Probably shouldn't have made that noise. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> yeah. So it's surprising facts about periods. Welcome to the new podcast. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm Jen Offord, and after three months of trying, I've managed to unlock my government childcare services accounts. Three months. Incredible Mickey. scenes. Three, three months. months. I, can I tell you, I don't want to get too boring about this because it is basically a story of administrative failure. <laughs> well, it's just the story of our government then, right? I mean, it literally is. So when you have a kid who is over the age of three, uh, you get a few free hours of childcare. It's not really the 30 they say it is, but that's a story for another time. Anyway, um, you have to go into this account every three months and uh, reconfirm your details. Slightly bleak story. I forgot my favourite place to go as a child. Uh, so I've got, oh, uh, Jen. got locked out. Of, oh, um, Jenster. I know, it's bleak, isn't it? I don't know if that means that I loved so many places, there were loads of options, or like I just couldn't think of a place I really loved as a child. Anyway, whatever. So I got locked out of the account and then uh, I couldn't pass a security test over the phone because there were two answers that would have been correct. And they were like, well, you just have to answer one. And I'm like, but two of them are correct. So what do I do? Anyway, I got locked out and they were like, you have to send us your passport and this and that and the other in order to us, for us to verify you. They send them back to my home address and then they send me a letter saying we can't verify your identity because unfortunately your address doesn't match our records. I'm like... You managed to send my fucking passport back to the right address. What are you talking about? Whatever. Anyway, I had to do this three times and then write them quite a rude letter and copy it to my MP. And then they sent me two telephone passwords in one day. So uh, I'm back in. She's in, but what an absolute palaver. If I was in charge, Jen, what I would do is... Did you ever watch The Crystal Maze? Yes. That bit at the end where they put them in the massive transparent egg. Mm. You'd put your parents in the egg... 
And then however many gold little tickets they could catch, that's how many hours of free childcare they got. Yeah, but they quite often got more silver than gold, didn't they? And then the silver... That's not my problem, Jen. It's just the rules of the game. (laughs) I still think it would be fairer than anything this government has done. Oh, it's an absolute shit show. It really is. Let's start a petition to get Richard O'Brien in charge of the country. I'd vote for him. I'd vote for him over any of these fucks any day of the week, like 100%. Yeah. I'm scared to um, do any research on him now, so let's just yeah, leave let's it move there. on. Yeah. <laughs> Coming up, Hannah chats to writer Kerry Hudson about her book Newborn, a follow-up to her memoir Lowborn, and they also talk about class, money, and why you can't air fry your way out of poverty. I chat to author Leslie McDowell about historical fiction, the Shelleys, the Romantics, and her new book Claremont. And in Rated or Dated, I'm so, so sorry that we're watching 1999's The Other Sister. That is not sorry enough, Jen. Try again. (laughs) Hi, Hannah here. I am joined by writer, author, journalist, all-round fab person, Kerry Hudson. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Nice to to be back in Standard Issue. How are you? You've had some health issues of late. Yeah, yeah. Kind of a, a shocker, to be honest. So um, I had my my first baby, my first and only baby, uh, three years ago now. And a year after, I realised that I was finding it kind of hard to breathe. And so I thought I might have to give up wheat or maybe get an inhaler, you know. But it turned out I had never, not extra, a one in 400,000 rare disease that where basically scar tissue grows progressively in your windpipe. So by the time I finally got it diagnosed, I was in the Czech Republic at the time where I was living in Prague. My windpipe was five millimetres wide. And like, basically, I could have just corked it at any time, like if I'd gotten an illness or you know, for some reason it had some sort of inflammation. So they rushed me into hospital, they dilated it, they they opened up again. It's kind of a fascinating illness. Like it's very rare, it mainly affects women ages 40 to 55, I think. You just have it for the rest of your life. You know, you just keep getting your throat opened up. <laughs> so yeah, so it's been, it's been a big change for me. Of course, like it only affects women, it only affects older women and it's very rare. So there's no money Nobody or cares. Um, <laughs> interest in research. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So, so I mean, actually, there's a really amazing sort of peer peer group, which is like thousands of women from around the world who have it, who kind of share information and share research and work with their ENTs to share that research. And if this had been 15 or 20 years ago, I'd have a, a tracheostomy now. So I'm very lucky, actually, that, that I got it in a time where all these brilliant women before me had done the research that the medical mm. community didn't want to because it's uh, patriarchal and money motivated. So... <laughs> I've always, like, I was brought up in a working class family where doctors were like gods. Yeah. They were treated with deference. And I've met some brilliant doctors, especially in the NHS, working under really difficult circumstances. But I'll tell you what, like, I've learned so much about advocating for myself. Yeah. And I am, like, for, like, maybe for my son, I could be, like, the pushiest mother in the world. (laughs) But for myself, you know, like, the idea of, like, speaking against a doctor or demanding something or pushing a point with it would have been very outside of my comfort zone. I mean, you literally have to, yeah. you know, even more so if you're a woman and even more so if you're an older woman. I've said so many times a combination of the last three years. I have never been ill before this. I've never been ill. I don't have any history of like seeking out medical treatment. 
and also have like a great life that I really enjoy and I'd like to continue enjoying it please yeah Yeah. exactly like what what do you think I gain out (laughs) like (laughs) exaggerating but I will say that I got I found amazing doctors in the end and they treated me and they found a treatment that worked really well for me which is methotrexate which is a low-dose chemotherapy oh wow that makes all the difference so I still have I mean honestly I don't have the life that I used to have it's quite a big job getting used to not having the life that I used to have because I used to be like just such a tornado of energy which is maybe how I ended up sick in the first place maybe research would tell us that but it has helped me really prioritize the things that are really important to me like in my writing in my life uh in my relationships so for that I am I'm grateful you know now let's start with your writing we're talking about newborn which is the follow-up to your first book, Lowborn, which I absolutely loved. It was brilliant. They're both memoirs. Do you think it's necessary to read Lowborn to understand what it is that you're driving at in Newborn? I really couldn't tell you because I'm just not uh, an object. (laughs) Say yes, because it means they have to buy two of your books. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yes, absolutely. (laughs) I've also written two novels. You should read those just to get more context. (laughs) I mean, I wrote it. You can definitely read it as a standalone book. I think you get a lot more out of it if you read Lowborn as well because I was in a real bind with it I really wanted to do this sort of like this is the real finale culmination of this story which is overall like actually a very a very positive one about how you can break patterns in parenting and in relationships and in the way you live your life even if you come from a very dysfunctional and traumatic background so I had a real balance between not being repetitive in the second book because a lot of people I knew would have read Lowborn, but also making sure that there was enough information so that it could be read as a standalone book. So, you know, the more information you have about background, the more sort of depth you're going to find in the book, I think. The newborn you're referring to is your son. Yeah. Born during lockdown, like our Jen. How do you feel he is getting on given the crazy start to life that he had? The first few months or even a year of their life that they didn't have the life that ordinary youngsters have in that they weren't handled by as many people they weren't sort of passed around they didn't spend as much time with strangers perhaps as as they might have he is just the happiest most cheerful kid way exceeding like i'm quite a positive person so is my husband but way exceeding that like they've you know nuked our positivity <laughs> he was always just like a, a really happy content baby and we used to say all the time when people be like oh he's so good he's so nice and like it's nothing to do with us we're dragging him up this is like this is a personality thing this is genetic I don't know but it was challenging I found out I was pregnant three days after Covid was announced in the Czech Republic Czech Republic went into really extreme lockdown we had nowhere permanent to live we were living in sort of temporary accommodation because we've been planning to move around because we weren't planning to get pregnant I thought I couldn't get pregnant I went through the Czech medical system you know which was not in a language of my own which is very different from the British medical system and then we were in a country where we couldn't speak the language didn't know anybody (laughs) like all of these things but actually I find this and you know this is kind of a theme of both lowborn and newborn and both my novels strangers you know can just be so kind and warm and there are good moments every single day, I think. around That's what we really found. Like, even in darkest lockdown, when we were, like, snowed in, we couldn't even take him out around the block for his normal walk. And, you know, we had a neighbour upstairs who'd come down and bring us, like, little Czech Christmas biscuits, beautifully prepared on a little plate. Or the guys in our local cafe would, like, stick their head out and check to see how he was getting on. And I think the truth is that there's always a community there, you know, mm. even if it's not the most traditional one. He's had a very busy three years, you know, so we moved back to Glasgow because I needed NHS treatment. 
And then we discovered that we couldn't really afford to stay in Glasgow because it's become quite an expensive, popular place. And so we moved onto a boat, but the boat we were going to buy was full of holes. And so we borrowed it from a friend, but that was not really set up for living aboard full time. And so by the time November came, we had no heating, no plumbing, no clean water. It was like pretty extreme. And so we moved to Sheffield and that's where we are now. He's just a super adaptable kid. I really... I really want to give him a very secure, stable childhood because I know, because I did not have it, how valuable that is. I'm also not sorry that I've given him like loads of interesting experiences too. So I'm working towards that balance, you know. Yeah, there is a desire within people, it seems, just you take a look on Twitter and see it. For one generation to say, well, we had it hard. Things weren't easy for us and it made me tough. And it's why I've survived the, the other things in my life that I've survived. But equally, perhaps it's not. Perhaps I was just born tough. Perhaps I'm just a naturally resilient person. Do we need a little bit of adversity in our lives in order to become fully rounded people? Or is that just nonsense and it's best to be happy, happy, happy and then just face the adversity when it comes? That's what I think, to be honest. Like, I think I wish I didn't have to be resilient. I've yeah. become, I will say that it's been a gift. Like, the last three years have been incredibly challenging um with my health the learning the learning that i made in unfortunately my childhood and my teens like really came into place to sort of make sure that i wasn't just like drowned by this sort of entirely new way of life i had to suddenly face but everyone faces adversity eventually you know it's you know it's it's very subjective i always say like the worst thing that's ever happened to you is the worst thing that's happened to you but it's not a competition you know everyone faces challenges i come from the standpoint that i'm pretty sure that if you get to know anyone then they're often carrying some sort of pain or heartache or disappointment or trauma so why would you not just allow your child to be as happy for as long as they can be as confident as they can because there are also skills you know like that I definitely don't have you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> were, really good for point. all my resilience and my toughness like I totally missed out on the easy confidence and the <laughs> you know the, the natural belief that everyone's gonna enjoy me and be generous you know and all of those things I mean I'm working really hard to give my to give my child as much as possible like a stable and I have friends who grew up with just like lovely families and lovely areas and nice childhoods and they're so easy and confident you know like it's not that bad things don't happen to them it doesn't mean that they don't have to deal with it but they just they move more smoothly through life you know and if I can give that to my son then I will be delighted and if he does face sort of troubles or things that require some resilience then goodness knows I've done my I've done my my PhD in resilience myself and hopefully I can pass down some of those skills to him yeah, yeah. absolutely <laughs> almost all of my really good friends come from a very very similar background to me and have gone sort of through a very similar trajectory which is most of us were the first kids in our family to go to university most of us started off with the description working class and most of us now would describe ourselves as middle class most of us own our own house most of us have what we would describe as a career rather than a job and that's difficult sometimes to sort of work out within yourself those of my friends who've now got children as well are like I am raising middle class children but I was a working class person we joke that ours is the bougiest baby do you know he said to me <laughs> in Ikea a few weeks ago he said he was he was having some smoked salmon and he said is this salmon from Puglia <laughs> I guess we once had salmon on a trip to Italy and yeah. he was like, but I mean that is that is ridiculous you know and he goes 
please can I have my baby Chino? We're going to spend um, a month in Japan uh, later this year. Like he's having experiences that I, I, you know, I hadn't even eaten hummus until I was like 17 or something, you know, he's having, he's having a completely different life and I'm grateful for it. You know, like I'm sure you and many of your friends, like I clawed tooth and nail to make sure that I had better opportunities and that the next generation of me would have better opportunities. Do I want to make sure that he's like not entitled, that he understands that his privilege is not just earned but has been given to him the way that it isn't for many people absolutely you know and that's something that I think will just I think it's just inevitable that those are conversations we'll have you know but yeah I mean he's just like a different breed than the child I was you know (laughs) and I think that's kind of cool you know that's like literally I mean that is theoretically how social mobility should work yeah absolutely you know yeah I suppose in that sense, my friends and I prove that there is social mobility, even though in this country, it really, really doesn't feel like there is a lot of the time. I mean, I think it can happen, but it's such it's such a case of luck. You know, that's the thing, right? The odds are just so against you. So, you know, we're like the what, one in 200,000 who who managed to use all of their natural inherent talent and intelligence and capabilities to make a better life for themselves. You know, there's all those others who had just as much potential who aren't making it because the system is so desperately rigged yeah. against poor people from poor backgrounds. Speaking of which, been sitting in the middle of a terrible cost of living crisis. The media is absolutely full of people telling us this is how you should do this this is how you should save money on this why don't you do this why don't you shop here I find most of it absolutely laughable and some of it quite dangerous <laughs> some of the advice that goes around I wonder what you make of the sort of or there's almost like a market for it poverty expert <laughs> I know it's not helpful that I'm shaking my head ruefully <laughs> because it's a podcast <laughs> but um, I mean I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty frustrated with it to be honest like I I wrote a piece for the independent maybe last year I can't remember yeah. where I basically oh yeah said, it was very good stop telling people in poverty how to be better at poverty yeah. like we're experts at it and I I should say I am very lucky to have like a comfortable life now, you know, but God knows, like I did my first like sort of 25, 30 years in like pretty extreme situations and I can budget, I could out budget anyone except maybe my mum or my grandma yeah. who did it for years and years before that. Yeah. I think it's really dangerous, you know, and also like it creates this sort of myth that if you're dexterous enough, if you're agile enough with your budget and your cookery and your you know and and your purchases that you can vault over poverty but the truth is like you can't get any meat off the bones where there's only bones yeah. you know it's a systemic structural problem and so saying that all you need to do is batch cook is really really dangerous yeah. i'm telling you we did I, you know the example i i give all the time is that we were when we lived in a we lived in a council house <laughs> on one of the worst estates in north Lanarkshire, and it was at the top of a massive council block and we got it because it'd been burned out so we came into like completely white walls because they painted over it but the smell of singeing in the oh, air God. my my stepdad put a, a coil of orange rope like a massive coil by the window and mum was like what are we going to do and he's like oh we'll just you know i'll lower you down uh, oh and it was craziness <laughs> anyway just to give you a sense of like where we were at in terms of like of poverty we used fairy liquids this was like my mum's idea to like cost save we used fairy liquid in our twin tub and to wash our hair and our body and to wash her dishes. And now she could be like a TikTok viral sensation. <laughs> <You know? laughs> 
Yeah. She could have her spot sitting on the Lorraine sofa, Absolutely. like giving her these thrifty tips. And also I think there's a, a real issue because there are people with real genuine lived experience of poverty. I don't mean myself, I mean much more recent lived experience of poverty, who could really benefit from being spoken to and being heard and having their stories heard. And I think that that's, that's really something that's missing, you know, because the people who get a voice always are people who either, like me, have now left poverty, you know, and though I never claim to be a, a, an expert in poverty, you know, only my own personal lived experience, or there are people who really already had a lot of the connections or the skills to be able to move themselves into a place where they could become that sort of voice for poverty. Yeah. And it's not that hard to go and find someone who's willing to like talk to you about their story, you know, as I think my first book, Lowborn, showed where people were totally willing to open up to me and talk about their own personal stories. Lockdown, in many ways for me, was a blessing because it actually sorted my finances out. Finally, I got on top of my finances. And I was really amazed by how quickly I forgot what it was like to be hard up because then I had a bit of a catastrophe that I needed to spend quite a lot of money on. And immediately I was just like, oh God, I'm here again. I feel sick. I'd forgotten what this was like. I'd forgotten what it was like to be like, I've got 20 pounds until payday. And payday is not two days away. Payday is two weeks away. But on the other hand, I'm in a better place because I've got something that I didn't have when I was younger, which is other people to ask to borrow money off and the opportunity to get credit and just have a massive overdraft, which is something that doesn't happen. So it's not the same. I wish I could explain to people how grinding and awful and terrible it is to think about every single penny, every single pound that you're that you're spending, you know? And not, not you know, like, oh, am I going to, you know, have a coffee or am I going to buy the newspaper this weekend? But am I going to buy rice for dinner or do I buy shampoo? So, you know, like yeah. really... Those sort of choices every single day, all the time. Like I often say, if you know exactly to the penny how much money you've got in your purse, that's how you know that you're hard up. My female relatives could have like out budgeted <laughs> any economist, yeah. you know? They were amazing moving money around from place to place to somehow make it work. And of course there was never enough because there just wasn't enough. No matter how good you are at budgeting, you can't, you know, invent money or invent resource. One of the things I often try and get across to people is it's not just the lack of opportunities. It's not just the lack of money. It's the constant grinding, anxiety, energy consumption that having to think about everything that you have and everything you don't have and what might break and what might run out all the time like that is that in itself is more than a full-time job yeah, you know absolutely and then you're also expected to somehow miraculously better your condition with with very few resources and almost no opportunities yeah of course what you need to do is buy an air fryer which you can't afford because they're cheaper to run i'm like well people just stop saying that fuck's sake they're not giving out air fryers for free and i think a lot of what people say is well-intentioned i think people genuinely think oh this is a good idea this will help people but they've just got they've just got no idea. One more question for you, Kerry. You're writing some novels. You're taking a break from memoirs to write some novels. Yes. Is that easier? Is that harder? Because in a way, when you're writing a memoir, you already have the material. It's happened. But on the other hand, there's an emotional journey you're going on. Which do you prefer and which one's easier? At the moment, I definitely prefer the idea of fiction, which is why I'm writing it. So I started writing novels. So I wrote two novels. One called Tony Hogan Bought Me an Ice Cream Float Before He Stole My Ma, 
ridiculously titled and another called Thirst, not coincidentally, not ridiculously titled. <laughs> Both, if I may say so, were award-winning. No, I'm going to cut that, Kerry. Are you going to cut <laughs> Please do. Don't let them know working class people can do stuff. Yeah, we'll, we'll all, everyone will be shaking in their boots. Uh, <laughs> you know, I love writing novels. Mm. I love it. Um, I would say that personally, I think nonfiction is much harder. Like the ethical considerations, yeah. the sort of creative constraints, Listen, when, you, when you're writing fiction, you can make things up, you know? If a scene doesn't go the way you want it to, you yeah. invent a character or you kill someone or you bring in a puppy, you know? You can't do that. Well, I, you know, some people would say that you can be a lot looser with the truth and uh, sort of your integrity with nonfiction. But because I write about the working class experience, um, I feel like anything I say that is not totally authentic, people will leap upon mm. to undo everything that I've said. So I'm so, so careful about being really, really honest in like to the point to the point that I think some people are kind of uncomfortable <laughs> um, in my books. Um, and that means the constraints I have for then creating a narrative that is like interesting and pacey and still funny and joyful and makes the reader feel things. It's so much more complicated. Let's have a chat in like three months when I'm deep in my first draft of <laughs> the thriller. And I'm like, this is the hardest thing I've ever done. Yeah. I describe writing fiction, especially like a novel in your first draft when you're just sort of, you know, allowing your minds to sort of unspool on the page. I describe it as like a sort of joyful joyride. You know, you're just with nonfiction. There's so many considerations. Kerry, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you very much. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. Newborn out now, I should say that. <laughs> Newborn out now. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Mickey here with an advert for BetterHelp Therapy Online. You all right? Such a small question and sometimes such a big question too, eh? Now, regular listeners will know I am no stranger to depression and while over time and with the help of some decent counselling and brilliant friends and family, I've established a toolkit to help when the constantly dripping tap of life gets a bit too much. That does not mean I am a stress-free human rainbow skipping through meadows. I mean, who is? We all carry around different stresses, big and small, and sometimes we can deal, and sometimes it's much harder to cope. Life, in it? Right now, I have a teenage puppy to deal with, and although I love her very, very much, she can be a lot. There, said it. And as quick a fix as it seems to say, I'm fine, I'm fine, and push it all down into the big inside box and put that lid on. For me, that hasn't been a great long-term solution in that if I don't get it off my chest, it will at some point come bubbling up and it's never been one to pick its moments in a good way. I find talking means I can avoid it exploding out of me like a messy emotional volcano all over my nana's carpet. Also, during my various times in talk therapy, I discovered that saying something out loud or writing it down can make it seem much more manageable than allowing it to swirl around and grow ever bigger in my head. If you're thinking of starting therapy, Give BetterHelp a try. I've found knowing how to reach out is sometimes the toughest bit, but BetterHelp is entirely online. Boom. Which means it couldn't be easier. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist, then work your sessions around your schedule. With more than a 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Standard issue listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash standard. 
That's better, H-E-L-P dot com slash standard. I am joined on the Zoom by Leslie McDowell, author of the new book, Claremont. Hello, Leslie. Hello, thanks for having me. Thank you very much for joining me today. I'm very excited to talk to you about this book because as soon as the publicist sent it to me, I was like, yes, I want to talk to her. But it is adjacent (laughs) to the Shelleys, as in like Mary. Can you tell us what it's about, please, Leslie? Yeah, it's about Mary Shelley's stepsister, Claire Claremont. And that's really how she's known to sort of literary history. If she's known at all, it's her connection with Mary Shelley and her connection, of course, with Byron. Because when she was 18, she had a kind of brief affair with Byron, got pregnant with his child and had a little girl called Allegra. And after after that, she kind of sort of disappears. She's really only mentioned when she's linked to sort of literary genius, which is fair enough, but she actually had a really fascinating life. And there's a lot, I think, about her life that's of value without the connection to the Shelleys and Byron. She doesn't actually need that. She's got enough in her life, I think, to sell herself. I did this thing for GCSE drama, which is obviously quite a long time ago now. (laughs) But uh, we had to do this play. And I was trying to remember this morning, what was the brief for this? Because I do not have any clue how we we came up with this idea but it was basically about the life of Mary Shelley mm-hmm. and how she came up with the idea for Frankenstein right yeah I actually became like a little bit obsessed with her for a while because her life was so interesting but despite this I had never heard of Claire Claremont before mm-hmm. why isn't she well known and and how is it that that you've sort of come to know about her I think there's kind of several reasons. She's known to people who study Byron, Shelley and Mary, obviously, but she's she's kind of kept within that sort of literary world, really. She's not really kind of escaped beyond it into sort of general public knowledge in the way that, say, Byron has, for example, or Mary Shelley has. I think partly it's to do with how we view and value women in literary history as well. I think also, and I love Jane Austen, I absolutely love Jane Austen, I always have, but we have embraced Jane Austen's view of that era, the Regency era, to such an extent that we just can't, I think, take on board a woman who didn't actually live like that. I mean, if you think that when the famous summer happens in Geneva when when Mary comes up with the idea for Frankenstein. This is, I think it's just a couple of years after Pride and Prejudice is published. And here she is, basically, she's run away with a married man and she's had a child by him. And there's Claire pregnant to another married man. And you sort of think, okay, so they're the they're the rebels. They are the the ones you know, the non-conformists, the scary ones, the Lydia Bennets, basically, who are running off and, and causing scandal and chaos. But then you actually look at Claire's life. Her mother had two children out of wedlock. Well, so did Mary's mother had a child out of wedlock, Fanny Emily. Claire's niece, Paula, has a child out of wedlock. Jane Williams, who's a friend of theirs, she sets up home with Shelley's friend Hogg later and doesn't marry him. I mean, you start to question a little bit, is the Jane Austen narrative pushed 
a little bit too much because society likes women to be married and have a home and children and it's all very conventional and the narrative of a a young woman who issues all of that who says no I don't want to get married thanks very much I'm not interested and maintains that all the way throughout her life who rejects all of those things that's a that's a difficult thing for society I think to really kind of embrace she's more I think than just a rebel I think she's quite an uncomfortable woman for society to kind of really want to push because of the the kind of lifestyle that she had and yet I think it's a lifestyle that really speaks to particularly young women now it's her letters and her diaries read in a very modern way she's very emotionally honest and open and I think in in quite quite sort of contradictory to the kinds of stuff we read from that period, even Jane Austen herself. Jane Austen likes to employ a lot of um, rhetorical devices in her writing. She's really a product of the sort of Augustan age. Claire isn't like that at all. Claire is direct and emotional and you connect with her straight away. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because after they run away to Europe, Mary and Claire, there's like a rift between them and Godwin, William Godwin and Claire's mother as well, right? So because even yeah. for them and like William Godwin, you know, were they married? Him and Mary Wollstonecroft? Yes. Yeah. She's a pretty radical woman for her time, like an extremely radical woman for her time. You know, and he's a radical guy. These are already very radical people and it's too much yeah. even for them, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it could just be experience. Like I said, with Claire's mother, Mary Jane Vile, we now know had two children out of wedlock. We now know who Claire's father really was. Claire never knew who her father was. She was told by her mother it was a man called Claremont and she had this kind of fantasy that he might have been Swiss or something like that. She certainly thought he was a European. He wasn't. He was a man called Sir John Lethbridge. He was the son of a baron and he was, I think he was about 40 when Mary Jane Vile gets pregnant with his child. She's, I think, late 20s at this point. And she's she, what she seems to be doing, as far as, as we can gather, is I think she was basically running her own pub. But she she ends up in debtor's prison just after Claire's born. So it's quite possible, we don't know for certain, but it's quite possible that Claire's very first months in the world were spent in a debtor's prison. She gets out of debtor's prison and this is remarkable because she gets the support of a curate and writes to Sir John Lethbridge demanding money, demanding payments, um, regular payments for Claire's upkeep. And he he agrees. He he does. So he sends money every month. That's how we now know about the connection because these letters were found. It's six months after this, Mary Jane Vile moves to London and she she's she just happens to be next door to William Godwin, who she knows is a radical, blah, blah, blah. They get married very quickly. And I think you're really talking about need. You've got William Godwin has two little girls and he's not really he's not really a hands-on dad. And you've got Mary Jane Vile, who's on her own with a, a little boy and a little girl. Makes sense for the two households to come together. And they do. And they get married and they, they also have a little boy between them. So I think they know how hard it is. And I think with... Both of them looking at Claire and Mary, they can see the kind of difficulties they're setting up for themselves. So it's the world is a difficult place when you don't conform. It's the old thing. It's all very do well as to I have... say, not as I do. Yes. 
have the radical theories, but actually living it in practice is, is not easy. Yeah. You've mentioned quite a lot of stuff there, like letters uh, from Claire's father and from her, et cetera, et cetera. I wondered, like, how easy was it to research the book and how much of it is kind of artistic license, I guess? <laughs> well, I actually, I first had the idea for this 25 years ago. I was asked to review um, a newly discovered short story by Mary Shelley called Maurice, or The Fisher's Caught is the other, other name for it. And the introduction by Claire Tomlin was quite lengthy and it goes into a little bit of detail about Claire Claremont's life. And I had no idea. I'd, I'd heard about her, like you, when I was studying, you know, Byron Shelley. And I remembered vaguely there was something about Claire and having a child by Byron and that was it. And there was all this stuff about, oh, she was a governess in Russia. She lived in an apartment in Paris. I thought, oh, this is amazing. And I just started looking for a bit more. And there was a her biography, or her most recent biography was 1992. So I got a hold of that. Oh my gosh, that was just, it was just full of stuff. So I tried then to, to write the novel. I just didn't have the experience to do it though. I'd never written a novel before. And I remember at one point I had Mary and Claire in a room and I didn't know how to get them out. I know it sounds silly because you think, well, they stand up and they get out of the room. I just couldn't do it. I didn't know how to do it. Over the years, I would sort of, I, I became, like you're saying with, with Mary, I became a little bit obsessed as well when I was I was in New York I remember in 2012 and going to the New York Public Library and they've got a huge collection of Shelley stuff and there's a lot of Mary Shelley's hair there and all this kind of thing which really kind of brings it alive so I, I was quite obsessed about it for a few years but I still couldn't find a way to do it and I think it's just one of those ones that just needed time in my head I needed to become a better writer I needed to know how to handle all the material because there's a lot. There's two volumes of Claire's letters and a, and a big volume of, of journals. And to sort of find my way through it, I, I think I needed to kind of just have a bit more experience and get to a point where I could handle it better. I wondered how you feel about the term historic fiction. Obviously, you write about things that happened, you know, in, in an historic setting. I've seen other authors get a bit miffed with the use of this this term particularly about women's writing because some people feel it's perhaps like a bit dismissive like oh well that's nice you're writing about women from the past or whatever I wondered how you yeah. felt about it maybe I have a different attitude because I fell in love with historical fiction back when I was about 12 years old that was when I read my first Jean Plady novel and it was the young Elizabeth, and she also did a young, the young Mary Queen of Scots, and I just loved this. And I read everything Jean Plady had to write. That's how I learned about kings and queens in England and Scotland. It was, it wasn't taught in school at all. It was, I read it all through novels by Jean Plady. So I've, I've never had that kind of sense of kind of. I know some people feel this a wee bit snobbery about mm. about historical. You know, people look down their nose. Oh, it's genre fiction, like crime fiction or whatever. And I think a lot of that is changing. Probably the success of Hilary Mantel changed it all, really. But also, it's it's interesting because it's gone through so many different kind of formulations. So if I started with Jean Plady at the age of say twelve, when I was in my probably twenties was when I read um, The French Lieutenant's Woman, where he's playing with, you know, the double endings and all this kind of stuff. So you, you get this kind of unreliable narrator coming in. But also um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, you know, this this idea that history is 
forever evolving. It's always changing. You're finding out new things all the time. And the sort of mining for sources is almost impossible because they shift about. I love that kind of postmodern take on history. And then, of course, it, it switches back. You you Then after that, you've got you know, David Starkey and Simon Shama doing their big series about individuals, you know, Oliver Cromwell or, you know, Henry VIII. I, I can't forget the postmodern take on history, which is that everything is kind of fractured and all over the place and kind of unknowable in this new sort of character-led way of approaching history. So I think I've always been interested in it. I've always found it intellectually interesting and stimulating. And I think the way that fiction writers have responded to those changes in attitudes towards history are really interesting. And I think they've produced some really challenging and fascinating novels. I mean, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of the Wolf Hall trilogy. I just don't, I don't see how anyone can better what she did. I mean, it's not just the details, not just the authenticity of the physical detail. It was really, what she really did was, was, was show how that kind of psychological depth of understanding characters who are pre-Freud and pre-Darwin, how you can really get into their heads, under their skin. It, it was remarkable. And that, that's what I think historical fiction at its best can do brilliantly. I, I mean, I've got a history degree. I, I love history and, mm -hmm. uh, and yeah. you know, literature. So that, what's not to like as far as I'm concerned? But yeah, <laughs> I, I think it's interesting yeah. that there's... Because I think history is sort of thought of as more like, I don't know men's domain really was history it's literally his story you know exactly i mean don't get me started it is the whole thing about um the winners write the stories and the winners tend to be men and it's really interesting i think how um history gets valued so and that comes i think into fiction a little bit as well that mm. if you're a man writing historically about war yeah like sebastian folks that's you know that's yes. that's a serious novel you know why is that anymore why is atonement anymore i mean i love ian McEwan. Don't get me wrong, I, I love Ian McEwan, <laughs> but like, why is Atonement more serious yeah. than... I mean, it's a brilliant book, so maybe that's a bad example. Yeah. But Oh, it, it's classic sexism, I just think. It's just when women do it, it's seen as an easier option. It's, it's seen as less intellectual. I was a book reviewer. That's how I started out. Um, after I, I was an academic, and I, once I left academia, I was a book reviewer for about 20 years. And when I started out in the 90s, as a woman reviewer and there weren't many of them around and I reviewed for newspapers in Scotland and in London trying to get books that were written by men to review was almost impossible they were given to the male reviewers so I started to think right okay that's I, I need the work <laughs> give me all the women I shall have all the women writers and that's what I did for 20 years I mostly reviewed books by women and it meant I got to review all the greats I got to you know review the big names, and I could never get anywhere near the big male names. I got I got the women. And it's really interesting how the sort of downgrading of something when women are involved in it, yeah. it's kind of it really is kind of seen as secondary. And I know it sounds like we're harping on about the same thing and nothing has changed, but it you have to keep harping on about it. <laughs> yeah. You can't just sit there and go, Oh, well, that's fine, you know, great. Because you're obviously interested in the period, and because this is sort of like the beginning of that romantic era, like Byron, like absolute prick. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, apart from like obviously the freedom fighting, they stand for a period of enlightenment, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, like yeah. enlightened beliefs, all of that. But like, yeah, I don't know, like 
Dante, Gabriel Rossetti. He's a prick. Yeah. They're all pricks. Like by modern standard, <laughs> they the, the men are beyond yeah. toxic. So what is the yeah. enduring appeal of these horrible guys? I think a lot of it is, like you say, it's, it's romantic. When I first started writing or researching stuff about Claire, it was Shelley I loved. I think I was probably in love with Shelley. I still think Shelley is the greatest poet that England produced. I think he's amazing. I think his his work is astonishing. And so, yes, Byron is is the absolute shit. Coming to it now, it was, it was really interesting writing it so much later. I started to feel more and more that actually Shelley was was the problem. And he's the insidious mm. one. And he's the one to warn your daughters about because he's the one who looks like he'll be the nice guy, the understanding. I'm a vegetarian. All of that rubbish. And actually what he'll do is he just leaves in a trail of dead women and children behind him. He's just a monster. He really, really is. And I think I think he did kill himself. I think he went out in that storm. Yeah. Deliberately. I, I think by that point. He he tried to kill himself a couple of times before. We we know this. But I honestly think if he hadn't died young, I think he would have killed Mary. I don't I don't think she could have coped with him much longer. I think he was actually a nightmare. But then that's the price that we expect to pay for a literary genius. And so we excuse bad behavior right. by men all the time because Literary genius is this rare and wonderful thing, and we all bow down before it, and and we forget about the the price that the women pay who are around them. One of the the things that really makes and it, Claire makes the point. I have Claire say this in the novel about um when Shelley writes about you know, a poet sitting to cheer his like a, a nightingale sitting to cheer his own solitude. I think it is. And she says, no, he had to have people around him all the time, especially women. He needed a little, you know, harem of women all around him constantly. And I think that kind of, <laughs> that necessity for female support has been there since time immemorial. And I think it's just that thing when you're when you're younger, it feels very sort of romantic and you kind of idealise it. I think when you get older, you just look and you're just like, oh, stuff that, just forget that nonsense. It's just absolutely no way and it's really interesting with Claire that by the end of her life she did I mean she calls Shelley and Byron both I think it's monsters of lying she calls them over the whole sort of free love ethos because as she rightly points out free love is great for men in a patriarchal society it's not great for women in a patriarchal society and it, it's it's almost like it's taken her that long to kind of realize the truth of what those things cost her Having said that, at the same time, she did take in Mary Wollstonecraft's ideas about women, you know, working for themselves, earning their own money, living their own lives. And and so I think as tragic as a lot of the things are in her life, Claire's story is one of survival. She survived. She survived them all. And she survived according to her own principles. She lived exactly as she wanted to live. And it was hard at times, but she did it. And she had a remarkable, fantastic time. Just very quickly, there's one moment where I think it's Lady Mountcashel is Mrs. Mason, who she knows in, in Italy. And I think she writes to, to Mary and says something like, oh, if only poor Claire, if only she had married Thomas Love Peacock. Thomas Love Peacock is an older man, a writer, part of the Shelley circle, but he's he lives in a big old manor somewhere in the English countryside. She used to run and hide from him because he was so boring. He bored her to tears. <laughs> And this is who her friends think she should have married because he lo he kept proposing to Claire. He proposed to her half a dozen times and she just kept saying no. Would you rather be in some 
manor house with your boring old husband or living in your apartment in Paris on your own, doing your own thing? Which would you rather choose? The fact that Claire chose the apartment in Paris, I think is what women would do today. And that's what makes her so relatable, I think. Well, Leslie, this has been absolutely fascinating. It's a fantastic book. Oh, thank you. A fascinating subject matter as well. Where can we follow you on social media? I'm on, I was going to say Twitter, I'm on X. I'm on threads and Instagram is Leslie Writes. And I think I'm pretty easy to find on Twitter. It's just Leslie McDowell one. So yes, please do follow me. Great. So the book is published by Headline on February 29th. Leslie, thank you so much for joining me. Not at all. Thanks for asking me. That was great. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Jen, what film that we watched this week had me cringing so hard I nearly threw up in someone else's mouth. <laughs> oh, this week we watched <laughs> The Other Sister. Why? Which sadly does not star Eric Banner. No, if only. Yeah, sorry, 1999's The Other Sister, I probably should have said there. So the film was written by Gary Marshall, creator of Happy Days and frequent collaborator Bob Bronner, who also wrote for Happy Days and is credited with creating the Fonz, apparently, with one hand hey. he giveth, and the other hand, I don't know. He jumps take... the shark? He jumps the shark, Mickey. Good answer. The film was also directed by Marshall. Now, I don't know, maybe the Happy Days thing there, maybe that's our first clue as to where on the rated or dated spectrum we might fall today. He's responsible for Pretty Woman as well, though, isn't he? Is he? Yeah. Didn't spot that. Well, I mean, <laughs> maybe that's another clue about where we'll land Subtlety. On... Not Gary Marshall's uh, strong point, no. Yeah. Look, I'm going to be honest about this one. February has been a barren wasteland, and I didn't look into the plot of this too much uh, <laughs> when I picked it. There really wasn't a lot to choose from. I just saw that it starred Juliette Lewis, Diane Keaton, Sarah Paulson, Giovanni Rabisi and to a lesser extent Tom Skerritt and thought well that's bound to be alright Oh just even that list just oh, having watched them in this it's made me feel itchy Yeah I think it's probably best if I just dive straight in mm-hmm. to the plot mm-hmm. at this stage Carla Tate played by Lewis is a young disabled woman it's never specified what her disability is and to be honest quite hard to ascertain from the performance slash plot I think we're supposed to assume she is intellectually or developmentally challenged but again very difficult to tell from what they've done here she could have just swallowed some marbles that's how she talks for the purposes of this film she's in inverted commas different to her two sisters and also her terrible mother played by keaton terrible terrible mother mother. the worst mother horrible who sends her away to a sheltered boarding school because of her differences her dad's an alcoholic by the way although that doesn't seem to have any significance to the plot whatsoever uh, and also you know not that the two things are mutually exclusive he seems quite nice yeah apart from the fact they're clearly republic anyway Carla graduates and her terrible mum would like to keep her at home forever because she has really weird ableist views but they have a family meeting and they all outnumber her and say that Carla should be allowed to go to university to study computer science in order to become a vet Hang that's on. how it works yeah <laughs> Carla meets Danny, a lad with similarly unclear special educational needs, who she starts dating. He's fairly independent, but his dad is also shit. I can't really remember what the significance of this is, to be honest. But anyway, 
They want to have sex. They have sex. Carla's mum worries about their relationship. Danny gets really twatted at a family function and tells everyone <laughs> they had sex. Carla's upset. Carla stops being upset. He gatecrashes her sister's wedding and proposes to Carla. She says yes. Her mum worries about their relationship. Not unreasonably, to be honest, at this stage, I'd say. They get married and everything's apparently fine. The end. Why did you tell our love secret? Oh. Holy shit. We'll get into it, but uh, yeah, it didn't do too well at the box office, Good. failing to make back its $35 million budget. What did they spend $35 million on? That wedding. The events. The hats. Maybe. The hats. Those funny little pillbox hats. It didn't do too well with the critics who slammed it as made-for-TV-esque, which I think is fair. And in our dead friend Roger's words, is shameless in its use of mental retardation apologies those are his words from 1999 not mine as a gimmick a prop and a plot device Desson Howe wrote for the Washington Post at the same time the humour works beautifully does it? until until Marshall decides to beat the comedy over the head and drum us once again with this relentless message mentally challenged people in love say the darndest things Additionally, Rotten Tomatoes gives it an approval rating of 29% and Juliette Lewis earned herself a nomination for a Golden Raspberry Award for Best Supporting Actress. Yikes. Yeah. So, Mick, I'd never heard of this film before, had you? No, and I was living in a blissful ignorance, Jen, until you, and I'm not saying this lightly, ruined my life. I mean, where where to begin? I'd like to begin here. The uh, website ScreenRants.com rates this as Juliet Lewis's sixth best performance. This is as of last year. I was looking to see if Juliet Lewis had actually ever said anything about making this film, but um, I was unable to find any quotes, sadly. But actually, this article on ScreenRant.com also alleges that she was nominated for the Screen Actors Guild Award for Best Actress in a Supporting Role. Now, I've checked because I found that to be unbelievable. And indeed, (laughs) she wasn't. Mick, I'm talking specifically about Lewis and the somewhat typecast Rabisi. How did you feel about the acting? I felt uncomfortable for every second they were on the screen individually. And Mm -hmm. when they were on the screen together... I, I wanted to crawl down the back of the sofa and stay there forever. It was so awful. I'm not a fan of Julia Lewis. This hasn't changed my mind at all. But just the direction, the dialogue, just treating people who are intellectually challenged as gimmicks, as puppets, as something not to... I don't think they're trying to make us laugh at. I actually think the film probably had quite good intentions, but boy, oh oh fucking boy, does it massively miss the mark. Every single minute of its 210-minute runtime. Yeah. I I didn't like it, Jed. Yeah, uncomfortable is the word, isn't it? Like, really uncomfortable. But the point I make about it not being too clear about, you know, what her disability is, is because I think we are supposed to think that she's, like, intellectually challenged, and yet... She's really quite intelligent and emotionally astute compared to uh, a lot of the other characters. The so mom. I was just a bit like, "Yeah, what are you trying to... Yeah. I can't even remember Diane Keaton's character's name, so let's just call her Harridan Tate. It's just appalling. She has no emotional awareness at all. She's incredibly selfish. In fact, I would say that 80% of the characters in this film are incredibly selfish. So it was no surprise to me 
when the dad says, at least they're not Democrats. Because I was like, yeah, you're all entitled little fuckers who think the world should revolve around you. Now, Juliette Lewis's character, Carla, and Rubisi's character, Danny, might have more reason to feel like that. But the other characters have no excuse at all. They're just awful. As is my go-to, I want to say it's interesting, but it's not really interesting at all. Um, the, <laughs> I guess like the attitudes towards disability in this film, I think it was trying to do a good thing. I think it was trying to do an honourable thing. Because weirdly, when I was looking through her top 10 best films ever, according to ScreenRant.com, it's quite a few films that she's been in that have been sort of about disability-related issues. She's in what's great, right? Yeah, there was another one as well, which I've now forgotten. But I don't know, maybe there were like a few films of this nature at the time. Maybe something happened at the time that made people want to cover it. And it's not, you know, it's not a bad subject to cover. It's a good subject to cover. It's great to talk about it. But when the attitudes are so... It's not even that because she's painted, the mum, Harrison Tate, is painted as being like out of order, isn't she? Like the film Mostly. suggests that she is out of line or that the things that she d- does are done out of love rather than like, you know, something sinister. But the way that they portray the disabled characters in this, I found to be like, yeah, as you said, hideous to bear witness to. So patronising. It's so patronising. And I guess, like, you know, that some of the attitudes espoused by her mum are probably not that dated in a way. I imagine quite a lot of people still feel that way because it's not a sub- subject that gets too much airtime. But we have obviously moved on, I think, quite a lot in acceptance that those views are outdated at least, yeah. right? And, and a kind of, like, moral consciousness. Definitely. Even with the amount of use the R word gets within this film. Mm. Like yeah. that just would not fly. But a lot of films we've watched from the nineties, early noughties, still use it with abandon. I thought it was interesting the depiction of the kids also at the university with them, the university the college, the community college with them as well. And that they keep still putting gum in Danny's helmet and that they're like mean and say the R word and are like bullying of Particularly Danny, not so much Carla. Because as you say, she's she's getting on with shit a lot of the time until she opens her mouth. And it's not necessarily what she says. It's the way Juliette Lewis says it that made me go, Oh, God, please stop talking immediately. But yeah, I do think hopefully we have come a lot further than this film. But I also think even at the time, it's not as progressive as it thinks it is. Oh, no, no, not at all. So there's like this subplot about her sister being gay which is the other thing that makes me think that this film thinks it's progressive, Ugh. right? Because it's like, why won't you acknowledge my girlfriend? And the mum, indeed, refuses to acknowledge the girlfriend. Yep. And it is our hero, Carla, who is the one who does invite her to her wedding. So, yeah, I think this film 100% thinks it's progressive. But the the, the way it's done is just, yeah, it's it's... Sick in mouth. Yeah, it undermines anything Awful. good it's trying to mm. say, I think. And also, you sort of touched on this in your description up at the top in your plot summary, but like that wedding at the end, like no one is right about that happening. Like, it, I mean, no. the way Harrod and Tate reacts is, you know, true to character, arsehole. But I'd like, 
yeah, maybe pause for a little bit. You've only had one big fight. You've not tried living together yet. Like, just why are we rushing straight to wedding when she's supposed to be, what, 19, 20 at, at the most? How are they going to pay for things? I mean, she's got a wealthy family. And that's the other thing, actually, that they're so wealthy that Carla does get to lead for all of the challenges in her life, a quite charmed life. Like, she will be yeah. rescued. She will be funded. She will be as safe and secure as money can provide. And obviously, it's not the answer to everything, but it absolutely makes things a lot easier. And that's kind of just like, yeah, but, you know, how many people have that? Not that many. Yeah. So when I said, like, you know, she's actually right to have, you know, they're, they're very young. They've been together for about four seconds. Yes. I think, like, it, you know, if that's my daughter, regardless of whether or not she has some kind of disability, I'm saying, oh, could we wait until you're a bit older than 19, 20? <laughs> like, could we, could we wait a bit? So, yeah, I think, like, those are reasonable reservations to have. But it is a horrible scene where she's like, you think that, you know, I can do better. But, like, I'm as... I'm as bad as him, yeah. is basically... I mean, it's the foundation of the love story for all time there, Jen. Harrod and Tate's character is, again, I'm not going to use the word interesting because it just made me want to punch my television really hard. But she goes from absolutely being in denial about Carla. She literally screams at her drunk husband, I don't want her to be the R word. To That's all that she sees her as. That is, like, she can't see past the challenges. She can't see... Carla and Carla at one point says I just need you to see me and that is great apart from the filmmakers have massively undermined that because when you do see Carla you do see a kid who is pretty capable who is getting on with stuff but you also see someone who has a massive tantrum when she doesn't get what she wants and flounces off helping to ruin her sister's wedding and then is getting married herself it's like no you are still a child yeah it's just Awful, isn't it? I think, you know, the thing, the thing with her mum is it doesn't feel like it's done out of love. It feels like it's done control. out of embarrassment or control yeah. or like, yeah, like I, I don't really know how to deal with this situation. So let's make it go away. You go off to the school over there and then I won't have to fucking deal with it. I, I don't think there's, you know, spoiler alert in case anyone's going to watch this on our recommendation. I, d well, I don't think don't so. But this. the mum turns up to the wedding in the end. Right. Okay. There's no redemption for her, I don't think. I think the film wants her to be redeemed, but like, there's, I, I don't think there's any redemption for her. And can we also talk about the gold suit she wears to the other daughter's wedding? Because that is like, she's made some fucking use out of that, hasn't she? That is like first wives club tastic. <laughs> it absolutely is. Maybe it was like a contract thing for Keaton. She's like, oh, look, I have to wear a gold suit at some point, or I'm not going to be in this yeah. film, which is terrible. And the other thing to do with the the marriage. One, Carla has said, I can't do any better. That's why I'm going to marry him, in so many words. And then Danny gets a marching band to appear and he shouts, this is a present for my bride. This is a No, mate, you're the one who really loves the marching band. This is a present for you. I think it's doomed, <laughs> if I'm honest with you. I don't think them kids going to last, Jen. But who doesn't love a marching band? I know I do. Would you like to listen to marching bands whilst you're having the sex whilst you're doing it as they repeatedly refer to coitus in this film um no i don't <laughs> i think i think i'm all right without but uh yeah oh dear what what a film <laughs> what a film 
Oh, God. Might need to have another shower. Oh. I don't think I have too much more to say about this, Mick. Do you? <laughs> I think I've purged as much as I can, to be honest with you, Jen. That and the late night vomiting after I watched it. I think we're fine. I'm so sorry. I, I pray for a better March. I don't think I need to ask this question, but, you know, for the uh, administrative purposes, Mickey, rated or dated? It's dated, but I don't think it was ever rated. I don't think it's time no. that's made this a bad film, Jen. No, it absolutely reeked of made for TV. Yeah. Reeked of it. Yeah. And yes, Mick, I agree with you. It is unbelievably dated and I'm I'm sad that this film should ever have entered our consciousness and indeed yours, <laughs> dear listener, but hopefully you had a nice time listening to us regret my life choices. <laughs> Stay tuned for more of the same. <laughs> it's Hannah's life choices or indeed film choices next week, but she's not here to tell you what it is, so I'm going to... We're travelling back a further 10 years in time to 1989, my favourite decade, the 80s, to watch Dangerous Liaisons. Ooh, is that is that a bit of Daniel Day-Lewis, is it? Is he in it? I think he might be in it. Is he in it? It does not have Daniel no. Day-Lewis in it. That's a shame. It's got Keanu Reeves in it. No, no Daniel Day-Lewis for you, Jen. And to be fair, after picking the other sister, you don't deserve it. <laughs> Standard issue for all women.